0: Our Old Testament lesson, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind So that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord. Thanks be the word of the Lord, pardon me. Thanks be to God. Reading that so many times just gets in your head, doesn't it? Our New Testament lesson and sermon text now Matthew twenty four, verses thirty two through fifty one. the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 24, verses 32 through 51. Jesus speaking, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be on, in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in, which part, in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are currently in the midst of the fifth and final discourse in Matthew's gospel. Recall, a discourse is just an extended teaching of Jesus... And there are five of them in Matthew's gospel. Each of these focuses on a distinct aspect of his kingdom of heaven. The first discourse is probably the most famous of his discourses the Sermon on the Mount. And within that discourse, we learn, Matthew 5 through 7, about the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. The second discourse is in chapter 10. And within that second discourse, we learn about the kingdom of heaven as it is persecuted and opposed on earth. In chapter 13, we came to the third of his five discourses. And we discover there that the kingdom of heaven is not growing by muscles and by chariots, but as the word goes forth, Recall there are those parables of the kingdom of heaven. Like the parable of the sower, for example. One of those parables that talks to us about how that kingdom spreads, how it grows like a mustard tree. The fourth discourse is one in which it's really unified by Christ teaching about sin and forgiveness. We read there about forgiving your brother not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Or what will be done to someone who promotes sin among these these little ones? It's better if a mill were tied around their neck and cast into the depths of the sea. So sin and forgiveness within the kingdom is then the fourth discourse. And now, as makes a lot of sense, Jesus comes to his fifth and final discourse and he tells us about the consummation or completion of his kingdom. As it comes into its own, as it comes into glory, as the Son of Man returns and brings the kingdom of heaven into its full flower in the new creation, we learn here about the return to vanquish the enemies of the Son of Man and to bestow the fullness of the heavenly kingdom upon the church, upon the Son's elect. Now, the implication of this consummation of the kingdom is that we need to make ourselves ready. That's not an option for us. We must make ourselves ready. And today we have three aspects of what that readiness must look like First, you must be alert to the signs. Second, you must look for a new world. And third, you must serve your master. So first, be alert to the signs. And here we are focusing on verses 32 through 35. Always helpful to have your Bibles open. Here, Jesus directs his apostles to a plant that was well known in that region, the fig tree. This tree undergoes a transformation as the warm growing months approached. Just think about how you might be driving down the road in the late winter, and you look out and you see daffodils bursting forth. You see forsythia bushes in their yellow glorious bloom. You know that the springtime warmth is approaching and that changes your mood. It changes your perspective. You're looking and then you see those signs. You know what is very near. Well, in Palestine, the fig tree transforms from something something unimpressive and spindly and very bare, into a densely shrubby bush with big leaves and a lot of delicious fruits. That bursting forth indicates the warm growing season was very near. So, in the same way that the daffodil, the snowdrop, the crocus, indicates for us springtime in Ohio or Northern Kentucky, the various events of which Jesus has just spoken in chapter 24 indicate his return. You should note there that Jesus says that you need to see all of these things. Not just some of them, but twice all of them. Then, and only then, can you rest assured that he is standing at the gates. That is the gates of heaven. That gate indicates his readiness to cross the threshold from heaven into earth. He is there standing at the gates once you see all of these things. Now, let's recall what all these things refers to in chapter 24. First, Jesus spoke about the beginning of the birth pains. Wars, rumors of war... Famine, earthquakes, persecution, spread of the gospel, and false prophets. Those, again, characterize the, he describes the beginning of the birth pains, and those things then exist between Christ's first and second comings. The entirety of that uh, timeline. What is also included in all these things are the climactic events that mark the end of the so-called birthing process, which we could then compare to when a woman is in labor and is ready to bear down and push. It's distinct from the beginning of the birth pains. The abomination of desolation will appear. He will, at that point, desecrate the temple and heighten the attack on the church. If Christians, if you and I, are to be ready, we must be alert to all these things. We may not categorize them as unimportant. Christ provides this teaching because he thinks it's important, and so we should as well. But a question could be asked based upon verse 34, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Hasn't that generation passed away? That's a fair question. On the one hand, yes, all these things did take place in the first century. On one hand, yes. But as we have been noting in recent weeks, These things that took place in the lives of the apostles, they were types and shadows of the ultimate things that are to come. This is how the Old Covenant operates. This is how the Bible operates. The Old Covenant was a system of types and of shadows. And when the temple came to an end in 70 AD, we saw a type and shadow of the end of the world. The temple was destroyed. And the temple was established as a microcosm of creation. When the temple was destroyed, it was a figure of the day of the Lord, the very end. When the general Titus, the Roman general, came into Jerusalem, came to the temple, and desecrated the whole lot of it, and brought an unimaginable persecution upon Israel and the people of God. It was a type and shadow of what happens at the end of the world as a cosmic Antichrist rises up and brings us all to its climactic conclusion. We know that it was a type and shadow partially because Jesus did not return. That abomination of desolation, Titus, he finished his work and guess what? The Son of Man did not appear and strike him down. He went back to Rome, he became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he lived for many years and died of a fever, not of death by the Son of Man. And so we understand here a system of types and shadows that play, which is consistent with the Old Covenant and the way the Bible does things, showing us, by way of example, a small-scale version of what will happen cosmically on the last day. So, we learn here to make ourselves ready. Be alert to these signs, typified, symbolized by the events between the resurrection of Jesus and 70 AD when the temple was destroyed brick by brick. But before we move on, it's worth taking a moment to demonstrate the harmony of this interpretation with what we see elsewhere in scripture. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter two. If you're using a pew Bible, page 989. But 2 Thessalonians chapter two really helps us here as well to see that Paul was speaking about the exact same thing but speaking about the cosmic version that fulfills the types and shadows of the end of the old covenants. So, 2 Thessalonians 2, first note there, note verse 1. We read there that Paul gives us the context. He's talking about the coming of Jesus, that's his return, and our being gathered to him. Okay, so that's the context of what he's talking about. Then note verse 2. He's addressing a controversy in Thessalonica. Some were claiming that Christ had already returned. Move on to verse 3 now. In this verse, Paul points out there's no way that Christ could have returned because two events have not yet happened. They have to happen first the rebellion and. The man of lawlessness or the man of sin. This is best understood to be a final antichrist figure who heightens mankind's rebellion against God. But how is he going to do this? Note verse 4 now. He declares himself to be God. A very satanic quest, right? and satanic claim. And he enthrones himself within God's temple the very same thing that satan tried to do back in the garden according to isaiah and ezekiel and what we see in that narrative a final satanic figure will come he will enthrone himself within god's temple he will declare himself to be god but what's the temple it's highly unlikely that this is referring to anything in jerusalem why paul refers to it as god's temple yet jesus had abandoned the building in, Rome, in uh, Jerusalem. And Jesus had subjected it to his curse. So it was hardly God's temple. Like, that, uh, the, the building in Jerusalem is hardly God's temple. I think this is best understood as a reference to the entire cosmos, not to an earthly building. That building, again, has always been a symbol of creation, a symbol of the cosmos. Due to time constraints, allow me to direct us to 1 more verse verse 8. The appearance of this antichrist, the son of lawlessness or the son of the man of sin, <clears throat> will prompt Christ's return again verse 8. Jesus will enact warfare and slay him. This is yet another reason that Paul is not referring to 70 AD but something future again. Jesus did not slay Titus. Titus went home. This is talking about the final cosmic reality that has yet to occur. So to summarize this first point of our sermon, just as you and I anticipate spring when we see the daffodil bursting forth, we must pay attention to the signs that Jesus lays out. Not just one or two of them, because then you'll see a war and a rumor of war and say, ah, Jesus is coming back. You'll get ahead of yourself, like so many generations before us have. No, we look for all the signs, since they all together signal his return. Make yourself ready, Christian. Be alert to the signs. Our first point. Second, Jesus instructs us to look for a new world. We focus now on verses 36 through 44 of Matthew 24. These verses open with a statement regarding the timing of Christ's return. No one knows. It's a mystery to all creatures. The angels don't know the day and hour when the Son of Man will return. Not even the Son of Man knows. Only God knows when the Son of Man will return. Now, a very important side note here about the Son of Man's ignorance. This is is important to be mindful that the Son, the Incarnate One, has two minds. He received a human mind with the incarnation. And according to humanity and to the nature of a human mind, the Son of Man can be called ignorant. He does not know everything in accordance with his humanity. He has a true human mind. If he did not have a true human mind, your mind could not be redeemed. He had to become exactly like us, apart from sin, to redeem all of us. So on one hand, you can say the Son of Man is ignorant. And that is what Jesus is focusing on here. The Son of Man is the language throughout this text. Not the Son of God. But we must also say what's not in this text, but what we find elsewhere. That the Son has a second mind, not inconsistent with the, first, with the other, and that is the divine mind which he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The same divine mind, which is omniscient, which knows the day and hour of the return. Behold the great mystery that we celebrate and adore at Christmas time that the Son is both God and man. The Son, accordingly, is both limited in his knowledge and also at the same time unlimited in his knowledge, ignorance and omniscience. How do these go together? We don't know. That is the mystery that is better not try to figure out, but better to worship and celebrate and adore because that is the only way for our redemption. Praise be to the Son who took our humanity to Himself. But back to this text and its purpose here. The reason for this statement about the Son of Man's ignorance is to make sure that you don't try to figure it out. Right? You see the point here. If the highest of created beings, the angels and the Son of Man, don't know the day and hour, stop trying to figure it out. Right? But now here's, the, here's where it's going. Because once you get that in your mind, that we cannot know, you cannot possibly know. There are two possible responses to this creaturely ignorance. Okay? Two possible responses. The first is this some being ignorant of the day and hour of the return then respond by becoming fixated on this world and the things of this world. Well, I can't know when it's gonna happen, so I'm just gonna pretend it's not gonna happen. Now I'm just gonna become obsessed with this world, okay? While there are others who have to come to humble grips with our creaturely ignorance, and we still must persist in looking for the new world, okay? You see how these two responses to our ignorance can occur or uh, can play out. One becomes obsessed with this world, one looks for the new world, okay? Two different responses to our creaturely ignorance. And Jesus then illustrates these two responses by referring us back to the time of Noah, when the world was coming to an end, but no one knew the day or the hour. They were ignorance. And these two perspectives emerged. The majority of that world decided to live as if the world would go on forever. Never mind that Noah's building an ark and he was a herald of righteousness. They just went on with their lives as if the world would go on forever and nothing would ever change. They just gave themselves over to eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, they lived as if no change were coming, being fixated on the things of this world. And so they were caught unaware when the world came to an end and they were overwhelmed in the judgments. Like someone who was unprepared for a thief in the nights. They failed to take proper precautions and look for the coming and they met disaster but that was the majority of the world there was also noah who entered the ark not knowing the day or the hour sure noah also ate and drank he had to of course he also married he had a wife and gave his sons in marriage But the thing that characterizes Noah here is not those things of the world that would not last forever, but rather Noah was characterized by building that ark and then entering into it because he was looking for a new world. Notice what characterized the two differently. The majority lived for this age and thought this is it. Noah shows us the contrary. He was prepared for a thief in the night. He was not overtaken. The sudden arrival did not overwhelm Noah because he was looking for a new world. These verses invite us to reflect on our perspective. More our perspective than our actions in these verses. We'll get to the actions next. But here it's about perspective. Does the consummation of Christ's kingdom seep into your thinking? Does it then begin to shape your heart and your view of the future that you have an eternal perspective and then rightly categorize this present world as good but not ultimate? The final two verses of, these, uh, um, of this section invite us to, uh, uh, f- I should say, focus on this perspective and not actions. You see what happens in those two, final two verses. There will be two men undertaking the exact same task, the exact same action, in the exact same place. One will be destroyed while the other is left. There will be two women undertaking the exact same task in the exact same place. One of them will be destroyed, the other will not. The meaning here is very clear. Christians will work alongside non-Christians. Outwardly, we will often be contributing to the exact same cause. We will often be cooperating with non-Christians, but underneath the actions that are the same, is a very important difference. The non-Christian is ignorant that this world is coming to an end, maybe willfully ignorant, we don't know. So the non-Christian lives only for this world, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and then a surprise on the last day. The Christian, on the other hand, is like Noah, maybe doing the exact same thing as the non-Christian, but they are looking for, they are directed toward this coming new world. So I ask you, are you this day struggling with what I might call tunnel vision? Are you so focused on the here and now that you are losing the perspective that the kingdom of Jesus is coming to its glorious consummation? And it is far better than even the greatest joy you can experience here on earth. What is the greatest day in your life? That will be nothing in comparison to the return of Jesus for his church. The greatest joy you can possibly imagine in this world is nothing in comparison to what you will experience for all eternity. There will never be an ebb and a flow to the eternal joy you will experience. You know, there's that kind of thing that happens at Christmas, right? Where at the end of Christmas Day, I mean, all the the parents kind of get in their beds and like, I'm so glad this is done. I'm so tired. But people who are able to just enjoy it, right? Man, I'm so sad this is done. Ah, this is such a blast. Why do all good things have to come to an end, right? That phrase will never be uttered from your mouth in glory. Isn't that awesome? The best thing, the surpassing great thing, will never come to an end. It will not even dip in terms of its joy. Yet we lose perspective. We develop tunnel vision. We begin to live as if this world will never change. It will never come to an end We become so focused on things that might be good like our jobs, like our families, like our hobbies, like whatever, fill in the blank, of things that you really enjoy. That becomes ultimate. When the consummation of Christ's kingdom is ultimate instead. We must maintain an eternal perspective Make yourself ready and look for a new world. Our second point. Third, serve your master. Verses 45 through 51. Here we move from perspective then to action. Thus far, Jesus has directed us to the signs of his return to help us prepare. Even though they don't allow us to calculate a day and an hour, He's also reminded us of that need for perspective. Don't become fixated on the world, but live as those who are looking for a new one. Finally, in these verses, 45 through 51, we make ourselves ready by serving our master. Here, Jesus provides us with a negative example. He kind of focuses on that to instruct us. There is a wicked servant here. And what does he do? He is a one who takes advantage of his master's departure for his own self gain, for his own selfishness. In theory, he knows his master will return, but he takes the opportunity to indulge in selfishness. Like untrustworthy children that go wild when mom and dad leave the house, this servant goes on a binge. His master's absence gives him a chance to exploit others for his own sinful pleasure. Note, he's not loving his fellow servants. He does not love his fellow Christian. He does not contribute to the good of the church. He takes what he wants and does not give. And here's the key. As he indulges himself, he loses track of his master's return. Let me say that again. As he selfishly indulges, he loses track of his master's return because he's so focused on himself. And then on the last day, not being ready, he finds that he himself is in a place of condemnation with the hypocrites. He is not numbered with the elect. However, the faithful servant continues to act like a servant even when the master is not there. He remembers his position in this world always as one under authority even when the master has ascended to heaven and he is not bodily here with us. He loves and serves his fellow servants, he contributes to the good of the church, And through this life of service, he maintains then focus on the departed master because he continues to serve him. Do you see how that works? If you're focusing on your own selfishness and you're becoming self-obsessed, you forget about the master. But if you focus on serving your Christian brother and sister, you remember Jesus because you're obeying his commands. So that posture of service to Christ keeps you ready. It keeps you ready. Helping you prepare for that greater joy and greater authority that he will give his elect in the new world. Giving us authority over all the new creation that we might reign with dominion at God's right hand with Jesus. If you go down a path where you serve yourself, and this is very scary, if you go down that path where you begin to indulge, just bit by bit, you begin to serve yourself, not Jesus. It begins to snowball. You gradually forget Jesus over time. You live for yourself more and more. You lose track of Christ and His return. You're no longer serving Him but yourself. He recedes into the back of your mind, and then you become Lord of your life. You no longer serve your church family. The church is an inconvenience. You move on from those things. You turn your back on them. You prefer the company of those who hate Christ and his church. You see that there in Matthew 24, those who prefer time with the murderers and adulterers. But may that not be the case among us, brothers and sisters. May you prepare for your master's return by serving him in his absence. Listen to his commands. Serve his people. Act like you would if he were here in body and in blood. Our third point make yourself ready. Serve your master. But as we close, let me just reiterate for us why we want to do this. Why do we make ourselves ready? It's not just to avoid punishments. Of course you want to avoid punishment, right? I don't want to be cut in pieces and end up in the place of hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm guessing you probably don't as well. So that's a good desire, to avoid punishment. But recall this developing theme in Matthew's Gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom of righteousness. A kingdom of glory. A kingdom of riches. A kingdom of uninhibited joy. A kingdom where the Son of Man is there to dwell with you, no longer to be absent from you. It is a kingdom of forgiveness of sins. It is a kingdom where you will be transformed and you will no longer sin, but you will be perfectly righteous. How wonderful will that be? Is a kingdom where you will dwell with your God. He will be your God, and you will be his people. It is a kingdom, as we have seen and will see, of feasting, of rejoicing in the great banquet table. Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner that never ends. And you always have room in your belly for one more piece of pie, for one more turkey leg. The kingdom of heaven. Being with Jesus. Coming to better know our triune God. This is the ultimate reason why we want to make ourselves ready. And so, beloved, be alert to the signs. Look for a new world. Serve your master who loves you. For he will soon come for you and collect you to himself and bestow upon you an inheritance of glory that it surpasses your wildest understandings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.